Good evening, everybody. Thanks for coming out on such a cold night. Uh, I know we have a lot more people expected, and I hope some of them will be arriving despite uh, the weather, but we also appreciate our broadcast internet audience. Um, my name is David Bowes. I'm the executive vice president of the Institute, and I have the honor of being in charge of today's events. We have many distinguished scholars at the Cato Institute, scholars in constitutional studies, economics, foreign policy, education, and so on. But perhaps our most distinguished scholar, at least if we can agree that it depends on what the meaning of distinguished is, is our H.L. Mencken Research Fellow, P.J. O'Rourke. I have sort of grown up with P.J. when I was in college, the most popular magazine on campus was National Lampoon, which he edited, and I remember some really hilarious bits from those years, uh, none of which I can quote because I think they all involve drug use, ethnic stereotypes, or gender relations, and they're all banned now. PJ then moved on to Rolling Stone, where he was the foreign affairs desk chief, which was totally cool because they let him fly all over the world. Um, why he actually wanted to travel to Beirut and to Jim and Tammy Baker's retirement village was never entirely clear to me. And then as he moved out of the rock and roll stage and into the age of sober reflection, he became a correspondent for the soberest magazine in America, the Atlantic Monthly. And there he wrote soberly about Medicare reform, social security reform, campaign finance reform, and other adult topics. Now, he writes for a magazine whose positions are surely not arrived at while sober, the Weekly Standard, and finally moving into the digital age from his gorgeous 18th century house in New Hampshire, he is now writing a weekly column for the Daily Beast. By my count, PJ is the author of 17 books, including Holidays in Hell, Republican Party Reptile, Parliament of Whores, All the Trouble in the World, and Eat the Rich. He is one of the funniest writers around. Indeed, he has more citations in the Penguin Dictionary of Humorous Quotations than any other living writer. What people often miss when they talk about his humor, though, is what a good reporter and what an insightful analyst he is. Parliament of Whores is a very funny book, but it is also a very perceptive analysis of politics in a modern democracy. And if you read Eat the Rich, you will learn more about how countries get rich and why they don't than in a typical year of econ at most colleges. That's why I keep recommending these two books as Christmas gifts. You should give everybody you know a college course in political economy by giving them these two very inexpensive books. And now, not just mostly sober, but a full-fledged family man. He returns to his youth, what little of it he can remember, with his newest book, The Baby Boom. He and I both remember when baby boomers were young and hip, alas. But for those of you who are still young and hip, I'm told you can tweet about this event at hashtag Cato Baby Boom. It's a pleasure to introduce the H.L. Mencken Research Fellow of the Cato Institute, P.J. O'Rourke. Thank you so much. I, I have been um, been very interesting to watch uh, Washington, living as I do in New Hampshire, to watch Washington over the past couple of days. Three inches of snow, and the entire government 
shutdown. And it just left me wondering, why didn't the Republicans just wait for the first tiny little bit of bad weather? You know, they could have achieved all their objectives and taken none of the blame. But no, they were hasty. Now, um, my role at, 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 at Cato is, uh, what I do is I stand up and I give the bad guys hell, uh, which is a lot of fun. I, I always enjoy doing it. The only trouble is uh, that I'm giving the, the bad guys hell, and they're not here, you know? I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you, the good guys. It's a funny thing about speaking truth to power, isn't it? You know, it's uh, pretty easy to speak truth to power when power is far enough away. You know, Kim Jong-un, you stink. I can do that right here, you know? So I think tonight what I'm going to do is you're going to do something different. Instead of giving the bad guys hell and making us good guys feel good about ourselves, I'm going to talk about a large group of Americans who are... Uh, neither good nor bad, really, or who are good and bad, and uh, very often good and bad at, at, at the same time. And, and, and these are uh, the baby boomers, the baby boomers. 75 million Americans born between 1946 and 1964. Big chunk of our country. Um, and, 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 and the fact that I, I, I'm, I'm talking about the baby boom and the fact that I've got a book out by the same name that's for sale in the lobby. That's strictly coincidence, right? Uh, but I, I digress. Uh, 75 million baby boomers, uh, they are extremely important to us libertarians. I mean, 75 million Americans who are right there at the key high voter turnout demography, who are just at the age in their 50s and 60s when they hold the greatest political power, and the greatest financial power in their, in their nation. And in this baby boom generation behaved in a very libertarian, or at least a very liberated sort of way. Uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, need I say more, you know? Well, that brings me around to the question about the baby boom, is why the hell aren't they libertarians? I mean, why isn't the baby boom, you know, as, 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 as libertarian, you know, as uh, uh, as Brooklyn is pinko, you know. I mean, I, I, and I don't know. I don't really know. I wish I could say that I was going to answer that question to, tonight. I wish I could say I answered that question in my book, but I really, I really don't know the answer to why the baby boom isn't more fundamentally libertarian. It's not a matter of nutty old 1960s ideals. Because those went out in the trash along with my bong and my beanbag chair when I had to move out of mom's basement and get a job. You know, that's not around anymore, you know. Uh, I, I don't know why the baby boom isn't more libertarian. I suspect it has something to do with the, the three-legged stool upon which libertarian principles sit. This is individual dignity, individual liberty, and individual responsibility. And speaking as a baby boomer, we have never been that great on that responsibility thing. You know? It kind of leaves us on a two-legged stool. And actually, if you think about it, we're not that great on the dignity thing either, which kind of leaves us on a one-legged stool. You know, so, um, 
I'm, I, I'm afraid that the answer to the question of making the baby boom more libertarian, and it is not too late, uh, lies with each of us. It lies with each of us being logical, respectful, and patient in our attempts to convince individuals that every individual should have what, in fact, every individual wants in his or her heart, which is dignity, which is liberty, and even if just for selfish reasons, responsibility. Responsibility because we can't get rewarded for what we do unless other people know we're responsible for doing it. Right? So I cannot make the solution clear, uh, but I, 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 what I can do maybe is make, make, make the problem a little clearer. Um, we, we the baby boom, are the generation that changed everything. Of all the eras and epochs of Americans, ours is the one that made the biggest impression on ourselves. But that's an important accomplishment because we're the generation that created the self, made the firmament of the self, divided the light of the self from the darkness of the self, and said, let there be self. If you were born between 1946 and 1964, you may have noticed this yourself. Now, this is not to say we're a selfish generation. Self selfish means just means too concerned with the self. And we're not. Self isn't something we're just, you know, concerned with, you know. We are the self. Before us, self was without form and void, like, like our parents and our dumpy clothes and vague ideas. And then we came along. And now the personal is the political, the personal is the socioeconomic, the personal is the religious and the secular, the science and the arts. The personal is everything that creepeth upon the earth after his, and let us hasten to add her kind. If Baby Boom has done one thing, it is to beget a personal universe. And our apologies to anybody who personally happens to be a jerk. Because self, self is like fish, proverbially speaking. Give a man a fish, you fed him for a day. Teach a man to fish. And if he turns into a dry fly catch and release angling fanatic up to his liver in icy water, pestering trout with three pound test line and thousand dollar graphite rod, well, at least his life partner is glad to have him out of the house. <laughs> so here we are in the baby boom cosmos, formed in our image, personally tailored to our individual needs, and predetermined to be eternally fresh and novel. And we saw that it was good, or, or pretty good. I mean, we should have had a, a cooler name, the way the, the lost generation did, you know, except good luck to anybody who tries to tell the baby boom to get lost. Um, anyway, it's too late now. We're stuck with being described as exploding infants, and maybe it's time now that we have splattered ourselves all over the place for the baby boom to look back and think, what made us who we are? What caused us to act the way we do? And what the f***? Uh, because the truth is, you know, if we hadn't decided to be young forever, we would be old. Um, the youngest baby boomers, born in the last year when anybody thought it was hip to like Lyndon Johnson, are, are turning 50 this year, 2014. Now, we'd be sad about getting old if we weren't too busy remarrying younger wives, reviving careers that hit glass ceilings when, when children arrived, and renewing prescriptions for drugs that keep us from being sad. 
And we will never retire. Uh, we can't. The mortgage is underwater. Uh, we're, we're in debt up to the Rogaine for the kids' college education. And uh, it serves us right, because we're the generation who insisted that a passion for living should replace working for one. <laughs> Still, it's an appropriate moment for us to uh, weigh what we have wrought and tally what we've added to and subtracted from existence. Uh, we've reached the age of accountability. The world is our fault. Um, we are the generation that has an excuse for everything. One of our greatest contributions to modern life, as far as I'm concerned. But the world is still our fault. It's, it's just a matter of power and privilege demography. Whenever anything happens anywhere, somebody over 50 signs the bill for it. And the baby boom, seated as we are at the head of life's table, is hearing Generation X, Generation Y, and the Millennials all saying, check, please. Now, I had a little problem with this book. Uh, the problem with the book was just trying to talk about the whole baby boom all at once. It's huge, you know, and to address America's baby boom is to face big, broad problems. Uh, uh, like I said, we number more than 75 million. And we're, we are not only diverse, but we take a thorny pride in our every deviation from the norm, even though we're in therapy for it. We, we, we are all alike in that we each think we're unusual. You know? Now, fortunately, we are all alike in our, our approach to big, broad problems. We won't face them. There is a website for that, a support group to join, a class to take, alternative medicine, regular exercise, a book that explains it all, a celebrity on TV who's been through the same thing, or we can eliminate gluten from our diet. History is full of generations that had too many problems. We are the first generation to have too many solutions, which is not a problem. Because you consider the people who have faced up squarely to the deepest and most perplexing conundrums of existence. Uh, I take Leo Tolstoy, for example. Uh, he tackled every one of these things. Why are we here? What kind of life should we lead? The nature of evil, the character of love, the essence of identity, salvation, suffering, death. And what did it get him? Dead, for one thing, you know, and, and off his rocker for the last 30 years of his life. Plus, Tolstoy was saddled with a 1,000-page novel about war and peace and everything else you can think of, which he couldn't even look up on Wikipedia because he hadn't written it yet. What a life. You know, if Leo Tolstoy, if he'd been a baby boomer, he could have entered a triathlon, you know, a, a baby boom innovation in the middle 1970s. Uh, you know, by the middle 1970s, we knew we couldn't, we couldn't run away from our problems. But if we added cycling and swimming, no. So to the problems of talking about the baby boom, let us turn our big, broad, yet soon to be firmed up, thanks to the triathlon for seniors that we're planning to enter generational backsides. Um, however, a difficulty still remains. Uh, most groups of people who are, 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 are tagged by history as a, a generation it can be described in a kind of easy offhand way. They're folks kind of the same age, experiencing sort of the same things and sort of the same place. It's like the cast of, of Seinfeld or, or Friends, you know. You know, I, I'm pretty sure as a result of taking a modern literature class in college that, uh, that Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott, and Zelda Fitzgerald, James Joyce, Gertrude Stein, Henry Miller, and Ezra Pound were roommates in a big apartment on the left bank in Paris in the 1920s. Uh, if that's not true, I give that idea for a sitcom free to any of the members of the audience here. Uh, but unlike most generations, um, 
The baby boom has an exact definition. Uh, we are the children who were born during a period after World War II when the long-term trend in fertility among American women was exceeded. And I had that excess began promptly in 1946 when all the guys got home from the war, and it gradually tapered off until 1964 when American women were taking a pill or rolling over and pretending to be asleep or telling their husbands to go phone the Pope about where to buy rubbers. Um, 46 to 64, so it's a long time. So the distinctions among different kinds of baby boomers need, need to be made. Um, now, geographical distinctions, that really doesn't work for a generation that, that moved around as much as we did. Uh, uh, class, uh, 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 distinctions according to, to class, to race, gender, sexual orientation would be offensive to baby boom sensitivities. And, and furthermore, they'd be pretty much beside the point in a book by me because as much as I want to be as different from everyone else as a member of the baby boom ought to be, uh, I happen to be uh, hopelessly ordinary in, in matters of race, class, gender identification, which section of Playboy I turned to first when I was 16. I'm, I'm just a regular guy. But time is a distinction that we all have to endure. So I, what I did in the book was I sorted the baby boom uh, uh, by age. Uh, the baby boom senior class, uh, they were born in the late 1940s, um, um, obviously of that ilk. Uh, uh, now, we seniors, we were, kind of, we were on the bow wave of the baby boom's voyage of exploration, but, but we were also closely tethered uh, to the wake of preceding generations. Uh, so in effect, what happened with the seniors is uh, senior, we, were, we were keel hauled. We were uh, dragged under the hull, you know, by the baby boom experience, and we were left a bit soggy and shaken. Um, and if we wound up as financial advisors trying to wear tongue studs or as Trotskyites trying to organize Tea Party protests or both, you know, uh, we, we are to be forgiven. Uh, I guess if I can try to explain the senior class of the baby boom, it would be, uh, I, I, all I really have to say is that it includes both Hillary Clinton and Cheech of Cheech and Chong, you know? <laughs> Uh, now, the junior class, and I think, you know, this high school class is a very good way to, to, to explain a generation that refused to grow up. The, the, the junior class, they were born in the early 50s. They were often the younger siblings of the senior class, and they, they came of age when uh, basically the parents were just throwing in the towel. They were just throwing in the towel during the what's the matter with kids these days shouting match. They'd given up, you know. And so the juniors ended up pursuing the notions, the whims, and the fancies of the baby boom with a with a greater intensity even than the, than, than, the, than the older baby boomers. For them, drugs were no longer experimental. Drugs were proven, you know I mean? John Belushi, John Belushi was a member of the junior class. And actually, John was born in 1949, but, but, but I, I knew John, and I, I'm sure he was held back a couple of years, so I think we can count him <laughs> in with it. The juniors were the teeny boppers. They were the groupies and the barefoot urchins of the Haight-Ashbury uh, now, they hunted up some shoes when they eventually made their way to Silicon Valley. Uh, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs are, are, are they're part of, the, uh, of that junior class, born in 1955. But you notice they never did find their neckties. You know? so, um, now, the sophomores, the sophomores, they're the group that were born in the late 50s. And by the time they reached adolescence, the baby boom ethos had pretty much permeated society. Sophomores, uh, uh, they gladly accepted sex, drugs, rock and roll, and the deep philosophical underpinnings thereof. But they had seen enough of the baby boom in action to realize that what works in general terms 
doesn't always work when the bong sets fire to the beanbag chair. <laughs> Circumstances had changed. In college, many of the sophomores attended classes. Uh, some even snuck off and got MBAs. You know. See, uh, the, the preppy handbook was written by members of the baby boom sophomore class. Then there is the freshman class. Freshman class were born in the early 60s, and they, 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 were, they didn't get it, really. They felt no visceral effects from the events that formed the baby boom. You know, to freshmen, the Vietnam War was just something that was inexplicably always on television, like Ed McMahon. You know, I mean, who knew? Uh, a feminism had gone from being a pressing social issue to a Bea Arthur TV comedy show that their parents liked, you know, and... Uh, and Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther King, it was a day off from work. You know, I mean, they just none of these things really registered with them. To them, the baby boom world that we live in now was just a given. It was an ocean in which they were fish, and and I think that um, the best example of that to me is uh, actually our current president. Now, you re may remember during his first run uh, uh, for the, for the presidency that there was quite a kerfluffle about the minister at his church, the Reverend Jeremiah Wright. Um, was a man, uh, you may recall, Jeremiah Wright had a, was a man of forceful opinions. Forceful opinions, forcefully put. Goddamn America, and the CIA invented uh, HIV and all sorts of other things like that. Well, of course, Fox News and the Republican Party and political operatives took this and ran with it as absolute best they could. They were determined to make a huge scandal out of the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, who had married the Obamas, who had christened their children. And, um, you know, after months of, of trying to turn this into a, a George Washington Bridge Chris Christie scandal, you know, but it basically came down to, yes, President Obama had been in church, but no, he hadn't been paying any attention to any of this, you know. It just right, gone right by him, you know. And I thought, boy, that's a freshman baby boomer for you because, you know, the, the senior class of the baby boomers, we would have been standing on the pews with a clenched fist going, you know, right on and suggesting property damage at the nearby uh, University of Chicago, you know. And the junior class of the baby boom, assuming they were awake early enough to go to church and assuming they could find where the church was, you know, would have been sitting there kind of nodding in stoned agreement and hoping that the church's social outreach program included a free lunch. And, uh, and, 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 the, and the sophomore class uh, 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 of the baby boom, uh, they, you know, they, they're a little more square. They would have been sitting there going, I, I don't know, Reverend Wright, I think that's pitching it a little high and inside, you know. But the freshman, freshman class, President Obama, he's just in the back pew, you know, on his Blackberry with Rahm Emanuel, you know, just floating right by his head, you know, <laughs> he didn't even notice, you know, the whole world's full of crap, right, you know. And now, now the baby boom is the world's future, and everyone on this planet is going to turn into the American baby boom eventually, eventually, as soon as families get excessively prosperous and happy, excessively loving and permissive with their children, start feeling too much affection for their kids. Well, unless, of course, baby boom-style extravagant freedom and scant responsibility and plenty of money and modicum of peace, unless that leads to such a high rate of carbon emissions that we all fry or drown or, or, or free. I can't remember. I can't keep up with the climate change people. You know, it was global warming there for a while, uh, and then it got cold. Now it's climate change. You may have, you may, may have noticed that. But at any rate, 
Uh, it's going to kill us. Uh, but, but you can't have everything. You can't have everything. And you can have a profusion of opportunity and at the same time a collapse of traditional social standards. And that is just what has happened in Western Europe and the wealthiest parts of Asia and Latin America. They're almost as useless as we American baby boomers are. And I mean useless in the best sense, you know, of, uh, with you know, abundant disposable income, ample leisure time to devote to pointless activities that don't harm anybody much except ourselves uh, and sometimes the trout. Uh, baby boom, baby boom like places, it's, it's interesting to me that baby boom like places, they all seem to be having in that, that kind of same kind of national political deadlock that we have too, you know, and, and, and a lot of the pundits all tut tut this, you know, and they, they, they all, you know, political deadlock's a, 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 a terrible thing. But I'll tell you something political deadlock is a big improvement over political unity, you know, uh, national lockstep on some bellicose purpose, you know. I mean, people forget Gulf of Tonkin resolution, you know, that passed the, uh, that passed the, uh, the House of Representatives unanimously. Passed the House of Representatives unanimously, and I passed the Senate with like one vote against it. You know? I mean, national unity, that's bombing Pearl Harbor is what happens. So give me deadlock any day of the week. You know? And we've all got it. All the baby boom countries have it. You know? And I foresee a day you know, when noxious politics that we've been so familiar with, we were so familiar with in the 20th century, noxious politics are going to disappear uh, because all the world's political science classes are going to happily, happily degenerate into those hour-long shouting matches the way my political science class did back in 1968. And I can't even remember what we were shouting about. We were all against the Vietnam War, you know. The students were against the Vietnam War. The professor was against the Vietnam War. Uh, the custodial staff, as far as I knew, they were against the Vietnam War. And we, yet we were all sh spent the whole hour shouting at each other about the Vietnam War, you know. And I, I just think, you know, that, that's a good thing. I, I think because it's, it's hard to be truly politically noxious when you would rather be obnoxious instead, you know? Stupid notions of central planning, of nationalization, of protectionist trade barriers, they're going to they're gonna fall by the wayside when everybody is asleep in economics 101 the way I was asleep in economics 101. I mean, well, we got a better world economy during, under the, the, the reign of the baby boom because no baby boomer ever passed that Econ 101 except by getting the last year's test from the frat house. You know? And sooner or later, you know, at one point, there's 1.29, 1.29 billion people in this world who are living on less than a dollar and a quarter a day, the way I once was when I was selling pot, uh, so I'd smoke up all the profits. You know? um, <laughs> And, you know, pretty soon at 1.29 billion people, they're going to figure out a better way. They're going to figure out a better way. In fact, I just received an email from Nigeria about a rather large amount of money needing to be <laughs> transferred to an American bank with only modest uh, assistance on my part. You know, there will be, there will come a day, there will be no f religious fanaticism in a baby boom world because we're not a generation who listens to anybody, God included, you know. In our defense, I, I doubt God minds us not bothering about him. Very few of the people that we've bothered, parents and college deans and the police and LBJ and attractive types in bars, very few of them have minded when we quit bothering them. You know? I mean, <laughs> world peace is probably a little too much to ask for, but we're, not, we're never going to have those, those, the, the, those huge conscripted armies that, that, that used to be used to fight wars because 
everybody will have a letter from their doctor about how they're allergic to camouflage. You know, you're just not going to be able to get those huge armies together again. And besides, war is about power. And you accuse the baby boom of a lot of things, but we're not a power-hungry generation. Because power comes with that kicker that I mentioned, responsibility, you know? And we're just not good with responsibility. We're greedy. We're greedy for love. We're greedy for happiness. We're greedy for experience, sensation, thrills, praise, fame, adulation, inner peace, and as it turns out, money. Uh, health and fitness, too. But we're not greedy for power. And I, I can prove that to you. I can prove that to you because take a look around this town. Look at the baby boomers who have climbed to the peak of power here in Washington. Are they the best and the brightest of the baby boom? No. No, the best and the brightest, they're over at Goldman Sachs. So I say, you know, to the world, I say, all of you tyrannical, despotic, overbearing squares with your two-bit autocracies at the butt ends of the world, you'll turn into baby boomers, too. It shall rain on your woodstock. You shall spend your treasure on discos, cocaine, and rehab. Your junk bonds shall default and your dot-com bubble shall burst. You shall form overage garage bands and try to play Margaritaville. Your third spouse shall acquire an American Express black card with a credit limit higher than the U.S. national debt. Your daughters shall wear nose rings. Your sons shall have pagan symbols indelibly marked upon their necks. Unless, of course, you belong to one of those cultures where daughters wear nose rings and sons have pagan symbols indelibly marked upon their necks, in which case they shall not. <laughs> you shall be perplexed by the Internet. You shall grow old and addled enough to vote for Ross Perot in a presidential primary. There is no escape from happiness, attention, affection, freedom, irresponsibility, money, peace, opportunity, and deciding everything you were ever told was bullshit. So I say... Behold the baby boom, ye mighty, and despair. So that's everything I know. However, if anybody's got any questions, I will make up some other stuff. Okay? So. All right. Thank you, PJ. I remind everyone the book is The Baby Boom. And if you're here in the room, we have copies outside, which he'll sign later. If you're not here in the room... The Baby Boom is available at every bookstore and every website. Um, now, uh, we'll take questions. Please wait for PJ to call on you, and we will bring microphones around. Please let us get your uh, okay, question on we're the our tape. Microphone bearers, we've got a question right here in the front row. I always admire anybody who's got the courage to sit in the front row. I can never bring you know, because they call on you. It just happened. Well, I've enjoyed your books and your writing since uh, National Lampoon Days. And I have a question. Um, some of the books I've really enjoyed are your travel books. Yeah. And last time you were here, I asked, were you going to be doing any traveling? You said you thought not. Uh, but if you did, where would you like to go? What would you like to be writing about? Oh, gosh. You know, I think that uh, I've got a good friend, not, not that much uh, younger than I am, Charlie Glass, who is in Syria right now. He's been in Damascus. He's been in the uh, occupied areas. Uh, I, I, I'd love to be doing that story. That's, you know, that the, the uh, Middle East is just, you know, I used to figure somehow if I could spend just enough time in the Middle East, you could really, cut, really figure out what is wrong with human beings. I mean, what the fuck? 
fuck is wrong with human beings? Because <laughs> they got it all going over there. It's all wrong. You got these ancient, oldest societies in the world. You got the brightest people in the world. You got these people who are right in the center of the world, and they're sitting on oil. And it's just a mess. Just an absolute mess. So there's something wrong. Man is a fallen creature. There is original sin. I think you hang around the mid... mid and then the other place I'd like to go is Thailand. Uh, because uh, what the heck is going on in Thailand? <laughs> you, know, I, I re, you know, the more I read about it, like I read the New York Times about the situation, the protest situation, and the, and, the, and the head-to-head situation in Thailand. And it's like everything I read about this just like sucks information out of my head. I finish the story and I know less about Thailand, you know, than I do when I start. Their, their names are exceedingly hard to spell. That's all I've really been able to pick up from reading the papers. Now, there's got to be, you know, uh, something going on. I mean, there has to be an actual argument going on over there. We know what the argument's going on between Israel and the Palestinians. It's pretty straightforward, right? We, we understand that. Why is nobody bothering to go to Thailand and tell us, why are these people camping out? Why are they so mad at this government? Why is the military sometimes on this side and sometimes on that side? There's got to be a story there, but this is like they won't fess up. You know what it is? Because what it is, is they're too cheap to actually send anybody anymore. So if you notice it, if you notice the byline, it'll be, you know, today, you know, such and such happened in Thailand. The byline's like, uh, byline's Beijing, you know, and so, you know, they don't know anything over there. So those are the two places that I would go if I could go. Sir, up here in the uh, sort of right-wing nosebleed seats. Uh, you ask uh, why aren't we all, I'm 66, a uh, 47-year-old baby boomer, um, all libertarian. Um, I think maybe it boils down to one word. Uh, in the early 60s, I wanted to complete the New Deal. In the mid-80s, when I was a professional Democrat, I was a centrist Democrat, and then in my old 60s, actually thanks to David's book, partly, I uh, became libertarian. Um, but I'm consistent. Government out of my bank account, out of my bedroom, away from my body, out of Baghdad. Whereas most of my contemporaries, they, they do pretty well on the foreign policy part, on the cultural part, but not on the economic part. You know, they just want to give away my tax money. Isn't it really at all about consistency? Where Libertarians are just too damn consistent. I think I think it is a philosophy that's too logical for a generation that has been deeply illogical. You know, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, I, I think that that is one, one of the main problems with libertarians, uh, 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 libertarianism among the baby boom. The other thing is that we scared the hell out of ourselves in the 60s and the 70s. You know, I mean, we we did we we tried like anything goes, and it all went. You know, and we a lot of our behavior turned out to like kill people and stuff. You know, and and we and we suffered a kind of reaction. There's a, there's a funny kind of social conservatism to the baby boom, not so evident in ourselves in our own behavior or speech, but it is very evident in the way we raised our kids. The hell helicopter we invented the helicopter parent. You know. And, 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 and because, because we're a generation that never grew up, and we look at those kids and we know, we know what you're thinking. Our parents didn't know what we were thinking. We know what you're thinking, and you're not doing it. You know? <laughs> and we're going to be there every minute to make sure you aren't. You know, so there's a, there's a funny kind of social conservatism. It's not, it's not the conservatism of, uh, social conservatism of exclusion or judgment that, that older generations, but, but it, it's a little, little scaredy cat, 
There's a little scaredy cat aspect to it, but we did scare ourselves. Sir, is that Ambassador Towell? It is. How you doing? BJ, that was great. I was looking around the room and I noticed there's some people that look a little more mature. I didn't say smarter, but more mature than your, what do you call it, your senior baby boom crowd that was born in the 40s. I think we might have a few members of the, uh, here of the, of the silent generation. Ed Crane's a member what of the they, silent. What is our role? I, ah, what you're are we supposed to do in this wonderful world. Are we still engaged? And should, should we do? You know, something? you guys have done enough damage. Or should, in we my, go, uh, or should we go fishing? I think you should go fishing because you guys have done enough damage. Because you look back at the '60s, you look at all that lunatic behavior in the '60s, and you start looking at the major players. They weren't baby boomers. They, you know, they they were predominantly silent generation. I mean, people like Abby Hoffman was born in, in uh, 1936. Jerry Rubin, you know, a couple of years later. Um, uh, Gloria Steinem, bo born about the same time. Timothy Leary, born in 1922, as a matter of fact. You know? And honestly, the baby boom, like during the 60s, we, we weren't the team on the field. We were the tailgate party. We weren't the team on the field. I was looking around when I was researching this book, assuming that you know that, that that most of these major players in the '60s, I knew some of them were older because I knew some of them, but I, I figured that a lot of the major players would certainly be about my age, and I was surprised to find out how much older than I they, they were and how they belonged to the very badly named Silent Generation. Ed Crane is a member of the Silent Generation, just to give you an example of how badly named that generation is, and. Um, the, the, and I, and I, I'm looking around for actual baby boomers who are major players and all that 60s stuff. I could only come up with two, Donovan and Twiggy. Because, <laughs> you know, all the Beatles are older, all the Rolling Stones are older, and it's, uh, and it's odd how much the, uh, the, how much the, so you guys take a break. <laughs> okay, <laughs> take a break. You already stirred up things pretty badly. Who else have we got? Sir. This seems to be the question asking side of the, of the questioning side of the audience. Hi, with marijuana legalization in, uh, in Colorado and Washington, is it sort of knocking the stuffing out of uh, counterculture and sort of should we be suspicious of our kids wanting to go to school in uh, University <laughs> yes, of Colorado? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I suppose it is. You know, I'm certainly going to take like so, so the edgy fun out of uh, uh, out of this. Uh, the um, uh, but uh, I think what I think is remarkable is Super Bowl. Both teams are from states with legalized marijuana. Coincidence? Huh? What's going on here? You know? Now I'm not saying the teams are smoking marijuana, but I'll tell you the Patriots during that playoff game in Denver. They looked like they've been sampling the wares around <laughs> the way Tom Brady was playing. Uh, yeah. So I don't, you know, I think this is a great victory uh, for libertarian, you know, libertarian attitudes, if not libertarian, you know, policymakers. I don't know how consciously libertarian these people are. I think maybe the, the conscious motivation is more the genie's out of this bottle. We're just never going to be able to stuff it back in. You know, we might as well make a, a tax buck off it. That's probably more how they're thinking. Nonetheless, it's a great victory. But it's amazing that now that the baby boom's really been in political power for a long time, it's taken this long. And that takes me back, I loop back to that thing that where we scared ourselves a little bit by our behavior in the 60s and 70s. And so we were a little afraid to come out 
We were a little afraid to come out sort of in, in mass to, to demand legalization of this basically, you know, not harmless drug, but sort of like not, you know, a drug that, that, that uh, with minimal harm to it. Because, you know, we just, uh, we, it had taken us a while to like straighten out and get, get, get you know, get, get sober again and, 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 and get a decent haircut. And we didn't want to ruin it all by wearing marijuana pins around every place. It wasn't great at a job interview. So, so it's, it's taken us a long time. Sir, in the back. You could call on two at once and then. I, I suppose I could, couldn't I? So are Bill and Hillary Clinton both representative senior class baby boomers? And if so, what does that say about Bill, senior class baby boomers? Bill is, Bill, he is, uh, uh, he's all the baby boomers rolled into one. He really is, you know. I mean, he's just an amazing example. He's got all the good points, you know, all the, like, you know, give give everybody a hug, you know, all the inclusiveness, all the personal warmth and all the empathy that we're famous for, all the irresponsibility that we're famous for, you know. And I have to say that was an um, interesting thing to me about the Clinton presidency was uh, 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 unlike most politicians, and I think one of the things that made Bill Clinton popular was he never did seem like a terribly power-hungry president. What he wanted was love. What he wanted was love so much more. I mean, you know, all kinds of love and, <laughs> and got more of it than he probably ought to have, you know. Um, but, you know, Hillary is easier to classify as an ordinary politician. She operates and speaks and acts like an ordinary politician. I think she likes and, and enjoys power. But Bill just wanted to be the center of attention, you know, and, 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 and you could see that he, he had always been that, you know, that, that, that character. So he, she is, you know, not, not, not so much, a, but he is an emblem of the baby boom. He is the, you know, he is the I contain multitudes, you know, the sort of the Walt Whitman of the, uh, 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 of the baby boom. He's, he is the entire generation, uh, certainly the senior class of that, of that generation. Gotta love him. Ma'am. The Cato Institute has played a rather constructive role in pointing out the inconsistencies in the farm subsidies. But I wonder what your view would be on what appropriate policies there ought to be with respect to greenhouse gas emitting industries and the role that libertarians think the government should play for climate change. Okay, the whole like climate change debate is uh, is difficult because uh, uh, you know it, it really it, it is you know scientifically highly complex, and it is one of those things that uh, it, that sets off a kind of knee jerk reaction. You know, when something as uh, as difficult, complex, uh, hard to understand, and, and 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 possibly as dangerous as climate change is involved, that is when we it is normal for maybe not we in this room, but it is normal for human beings to run off to the authorities, whatever authorities happen to be in charge in a given place, asking for help and relief with something because it seems like it's bigger than any one of us. You know, I mean, there are a few times when people naturally run toward authority, even if that authority is not the best authority in the world. When the Nazis are invading your country, 
you look to the authority of the Soviet Union, even if you hated the Soviet Union, you kind of feel that your government, even if you didn't like it much, ought to be doing something about these Nazis and their tanks, you know, and you're not unjustified in that. And, you know, Paul, Paul, Politicians understand this about climate change and about all the, the issues, what we so quaintly used to call pollution, uh, and, and which I would prefer to return to, uh, calling it pollution, all these pollution issues. They see this as a way toward political power. You know, I mean, politicians just want power. Uh, they will use the economy to get it, but if you throw them out the door of economics, they will come they will come back in through the window of climate change. You know, if you pitch them out the window of climate change, they'll come down the chimney of income inequality. Any cause will do for politicians because what they want to do is get elected and gain power. And what we're, of course, what we're really facing here is the tragedy of the commons. What we're really facing is la not, 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 not abuse of private uh, uh, property rights, but lack of, of private property rights. I mean, the, the answer to pollution, and let's simply call it that, because a pollution I can understand, the rest of this stuff I'm not sure I do understand. But the answer to pollution is, for, is ownership. You know, it's, it's, it's simple rules of common law tort. You know, if you're, you're boiling meth in your garage and uh, nasty chemicals from your meth making in your garage are spilling over and killing my begonias, I've got a case, you know. But if I don't have the air rights over the begonias, that case becomes, you know, if I don't own the begonia ground, if that happens, if, my, if it's the state that owns my begonia because the state has the begonia, has taken over the begonia, nationalized the begonia growing industry, if it's the state, you know, and so, you know, our, our, our public water, our public air, uh, uh, they're similar to our public restrooms in public parks, you know. <laughs> and so what, what is needed here are stricter rules of control. I leave it to people who are much smarter and better informed in the Cato industry to give you the details of how to do this, you know. But, uh, uh, but, but that, that is what, what we're dealing with, with, with uh, uh, here. If, if, if we are concerned about what somebody's putting into our air and we have no control over our air because government has nationalized the air, um, it, it is, there, there, then there is no answer. Ma'am. Four questions. David tells me one more question. Other than wealth, and just all of the luxuries that wealth provided. Why post-war 46 to, you know, whatever it was, 64? 64, yeah. Yeah. Why are they different? Yeah, well, it is wealth. You know, I mean, really, you put, you, you know, you, you cannot. I did the research on this, and the, the thing that's interesting, you compare the greatest generation against the baby boom, uh, one of the key uh, figures here is median family income, not average family incomes, because that can be terribly skewed by, 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 by poverty at the, at the bottom and, and wealth at the top. But median family income with half the numbers of families above, half below. Um, median family income for members of the baby boom uh, was $10,000 a year greater than the median family income for, 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 for greatest generation. 
Uh, I, I mean, so right there, and that's, that's chain dollars. That, 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 that is inflation constant dollars. So that's a huge difference. I mean, $10,000, not only is that a, a, a big real difference, uh, in, in the, especially in the modest world of, uh, 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 of middle class existence in, in, in the late 40s and early 50s, um, when, when there were a lot of people who didn't even make $10,000, let alone make $10,000 more. But then you are right, there's something else there. And, 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 but it, all, it has to do with wealth, but it has to do with the consistency of that wealth. If you look at the baby boom, at the at median income on, uh, uh, during baby boom's childhoods, you will see a, a strong, steady, continuous upward curve. A strong, steady, continuous growth. It's not spectacular growth, but it is strong and steady. And it starts, there's a little recession right after the war, and this growth starts very soon after the war, and it continues right, really right up to the Carter era. There's one or two little dips in there, but, it, but basically that growth is there. If you look at that same economic situation, or you say GDP per capita, and you look at the, the experience of the greatest generation, what you will see is it goes up, it goes down, it goes way up, it goes way down. It is so unstable. The VIX here uh, is so high, you know, uh, that, 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 uh, uh, that the, the, the greatest generation, their parents, their best year was only two years away from their worst year. And so, not, so you have people who are not only poor, the greatest generation, not only did they grow up poor, but they, grow up, they grew up far less secure. And so, you know, that, those things really probably explain, and I say, you know, people say, well, what, give me, you know, a couple of words. What's the difference between the greatest generation and the baby boom? I'll say $10,000. That's really the difference, you know. It's also how that $10,000 came. Well, can we do one more, David? Sure, you can do one okay. more. All just, right. Well, it's, it's just book selling we're going to move to. Okay, that's all right. <laughs> Sir. Yes, who in your view? Uh, oh, I got the microphone coming here. Thank you. Who in your view, other than yourself, is the funniest boomer? And secondly, other than the aforementioned president, who do you think best personifies the generation? Well, the, the funniest baby boomer and the person who in many ways pers best personifies the baby boomer, I think, is Dave Barry. I mean, I just think that's an absolute, he just has, has the voice. You know, he's got the whole, he, the whole thing. He and I were doing a conversation, some promotional thing, I think it was on, on Amazon. We were having an internet conversation. And, and uh, of course, we, we, just, we both had our publicists calling us all through the internet conversation. We talk about the book. Talk about the book. <laughs> we're not talking about the book. You know? <laughs> we're talking about kids' music today. It sucks. You know? <laughs> it's, it's just noise. <laughs> Dave, Dave, Dave says, we had, yeah, because our, our, not only did our, was our music good, was our music really good, but it had meaning. It had meaning. I specifically refer you to the lyrics of Hannibal, a cannibal and the headhunters in their, in their famous hit, Sean, na 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 so he, you know, I just think he's absolutely great, and he's got he's got a book coming out uh, not 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 long from now called uh, it's uh, basically addressed to his daughter. He's got a he, he like me started late on this, and he he and I both have sixteen year old daughters, and in his book is called "You Can Date Boys When You're 40. <laughs> Thank you, thank BJ. you all.